The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. 
When I was a kid, which I know for some of you was not that long ago, and for others of you, very long ago, but when I was a kid, there was in the library, it seemed, countless books that belonged to this series called the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Do you remember these things from the 1980s and 1990s? Choose Your Own Adventure. The idea was that you would go to the library, pick up the book, and you'd start reading, and every page, or every few pages, there was a choice that you had to make before you stand two doors. One is covered in ivy and is rotten, and the other door is silver and gleaming. Which door do you choose? And based on your choice, there were some instructions. If you choose the ivy-covered door, turn to page 45 and see what happens next. If you choose the gleaming door, turn to page 47 and see what happens next. Choose your own adventure. And along the way, you'd find that you could alter the story. There were all kinds of different endings to the story. Some of the books had lots and lots of different options. And if you didn't like the ending, you just flip back and make a different choice and see if you could make the story turn out differently. Choose your own adventure. The prodigal son in our parable today thinks that he is choosing his own adventure. He thinks that's what sin is. It's just one of those options, one of those choices that you might make. And look at the horizons that open up in front of you when you make that choice. Take your pick, and there's all different kinds of endings. You don't know how this story is going to end. You don't know where you're going to go, but it'll be marvelous, won't it? Because you are choosing your own adventure. There are some myths that are common in our world about sin, or as Jesus calls it, the broad way. The broad way. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Enter by the narrow gate... For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That broad way, that easy way, that choose-your-own-adventure way, pick from all of these options of pleasures and delights and following the passions of your heart, it is a broad way, but where does it lead? Here's the myth. All of those roads lead to the same place. It is not like a choose-your-adventure book with 44 different possible endings. There is always the same ending. Although it seems like you might be able to find a path that leads somewhere interesting, somewhere new, somewhere you'd like to go, it all winds up in the same place. Broad and easy is the way of sin, and it leads to the grave. And notice this, narrow and confined. The grave, like the rich man found himself in a few weeks ago, where all that he does, day in and day out, is the very same thing he'd done his whole life long. Think about himself. Think about no one but number one. That's the first myth about sin, about the broad way. The idea that there are all different kinds of conclusions to this story. Really, it's all the same story. There are a million different ways you can start the story, but the path downward leads ever downward. It's like a funnel, and you always end up in the bottom. Here's the other myth about that broad and easy way, about choosing sin. And it is that you can turn back whenever you want. That if you don't like the way the story is going, look, you can just flip back a few pages and make a different choice. That is a very common myth in our world. Look, I'll just try it for a little while and see how it plays out. And if the going gets rough, then I'll turn back. Then I'll change my mind. 
then I will decide to do something different. But here's the thing. It's not so much about the turning around that is difficult, but it is the wanting to turn around that is difficult. That prodigal son found, him on this, found himself on this downward path, and things were delightful. They were wonderful. He did not want to turn around. They were delightful and wonderful until they weren't, at which point, how could he turn himself around? The myth is that you can choose sin, you can choose this broad way, and look when things get difficult, or when you get into trouble, or when the trouble gets too great, or when things get out of hand, and you can just back up, and then, then you can get on the right path. But when you choose sin, you are choosing the opposite of what God has in store for you. You do not want to be saved from your sin when you choose sin. You do not want eternal life when you choose temporal life, the things of this world. When you choose the broad and easy way, you are choosing it because you do not want the narrow way. And so you cannot just turn back whenever you want. It turns out it is nothing like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but here's the thing. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to be a pastor or anybody who's even trained in the stories of scriptures to know this, to see this, to see how things go. Look at the pattern that the prodigal son follows. It is such a familiar and common pattern. It is almost unchangeable. It starts with this. What's his choice? Ingratitude. All that is his father's belongs to him as well. He lives in his father's house and he thinks of it as not enough. Look, it would be better if it were actually mine, if I possessed it. Look, it would be better, Dad, if you were dead already, because then finally I could do with your stuff the things that I want to do. He begins with ingratitude and with pride. That's his sin of choice. That's the choice he makes on page one. There are all different kinds of ways you can start this road, but that's how he begins it, thinking that the best path forward is for him to be his own father, his own master, to make his own gods. And so he takes all of that stuff that his father gives to him, which does not belong to him by rights, but which is a gift. He takes all of that and he goes off into a foreign country and he gratifies every desire of his flesh. He does what is pleasant. He wouldn't have kept on doing it if he was not enjoying it, squandering that property in reckless living. You do not keep doing sin if you do not enjoy it. That's the problem with sin, is that it is delightful. That's the problem with the broad way, is that it is easy. It scratches every itch that we've got. This is the thing about the devil. He knows where it itches. And he offers you the cure, the remedy to everything that you want in this life. Look, you can have it now. Look, you can enjoy yourself now. And that is exactly what the prodigal son has indulged. And here the path continues onward. At this point, if you ask the prodigal son, is this a downward or an upward path that you're on? Is this the broad way or the narrow way? He would say, "Ah, it's it's just fine. I'm not really going up or down. I'm I'm steady. This is great. This is the path I've chosen for myself. But all of that comes screeching to a halt when tragedy strikes. Now, it's odd to say, I know. But sometimes the very best thing, in fact, often, The very best thing for a person is for tragedy to strike. Famine falls on the land, and all of the things that he thought he possessed, that he thought he could hold on to, the things that he loved, and the things that he worshipped, all of them, all of a sudden, are dead. And they cannot help him 
any longer. All of a sudden, he realizes that the idols, the things he's worshipped and the things that he's loved, they cannot help him. They cannot save him. All of his sins and the pleasure of those sins, they vanish like vapor. They're gone. And where does he find himself next? The path continues further downward. Hires himself out to a pig farmer, which in ancient Israel is the last job a Jew would want. Pigs are unclean animals serving in a Gentile field. That's the last thing, humiliating, beneath him, far beneath him, subhuman, in fact, as he finds himself kind of crawling on the ground like a beast longing to be fed with the food that feeds the pigs. Degradation and destitution. What does he have? Absolutely nothing. He is left without a thing in this life and without a thing for eternity. Downward and downward the path goes. Again, you can start that path a million different ways. Take your pick. What is it that tempts you? What sins offer delight and satisfaction? What kinds of things does your heart crave? What kinds of passions are you tempted to follow? The path always goes the same way. And that is why we ought to take sin more seriously. I can say that without a shadow of a doubt. We must take sin more seriously. You can never, in fact, take it too seriously. If at any point you find yourself saying, look, that's, that's enough talking about sin. Look, aren't we just being a little bit pious here? Aren't we being a little bit I don't know, self-righteous here, talking so much about sin. Everyone sins. Everyone does it. I know some sins are bigger and worse than others. Why don't we focus on those things? Why be so nitpicky? Why care about what's in our hearts? Look, we're good people. Would you just leave sin off the table? If you ever find yourself saying that, guess what? We need to talk about sin more. And we need to take it more seriously. Always. You can never take it too seriously. Listen to how God describes his attitude towards sins. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing not only the sinner, but the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the sinner to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now God threatens to punish all who sin and break his commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. Now, not just talking about Sins that are obvious, the things you don't like, the things that grate on you, obviously, those are easy to take seriously. They're especially easy to take seriously in other people's lives and to take seriously in a way that doesn't involve any risk on your part. Say, for instance, just talking about someone else's sins, that's easy to do, but that is not taking sin seriously. That's just scratching another one of those itches that you've got to feel better than other people. I'm talking about all sins every sins, and your sins. Talking about the obvious ones, lying and cheating and stealing and defiling the marriage bed. And I'm talking about the ones that are not obvious, the ones that are hidden in your hearts, anger and hatred and an unwillingness to forgive and lust and envy, those that you bury deep, the ones you hide away in the recesses of your heart. Take them seriously. Where does that path lead? Ever downwards. They will always let you down. That's the first thing to remember about sin. The promises are empty. They're void. This is what Jesus has in mind for you. It's not just that he wants to spoil your fun, but he wants to save you 
from finding yourself one day craving pig food. What an awful place that is to end up. Here's how you start to take sin more seriously. And I think if we don't every day of our lives as Christians, again, take sin more seriously, we will find ourselves gradually slipping down a path like that of the prodigal son. Here's how you do it. Begin with your own sins. If you do not examine your heart, if you do not look at your own actions, if you do not look at the things that you love and ask whether or not they are in line with God's commands and what God says is good, if you have never done that or if you do not do that, then you should. If you look in your hearts and you see certain sins that harass you all of the time, repent. Repent. That's what you do with those sins. Don't make excuses. Don't hide them away. Don't make comparisons. Don't treat them as though they were little. Instead, treat them as deadly and repent. You also take it seriously by not letting one another off the hook. The church is a peculiar place. St. Paul talks about this when he writes his letter to Corinth. He says to all of the people of the church of Corinth who are a mess because of the sins that they've indulged in their hearts. And there's a whole long litany of them. If you read Paul's letters, he's got laundry lists of sins. And if you don't find yourself in those lists, then you're not reading carefully. He says to the people of Corinth, look, what people do outside the world, that's another matter. Why should they do anything different? They don't have the Savior. They don't have the gospel. They haven't received the mercy of God. But how do you think about your neighbor within the church? Your brothers and sisters in the pews, the people with whom you have bound yourselves by a common confession, by trust in your Savior, how do you think about their sins? Do you regard them lightly? Do you think that they're really not something for you to pay attention to? Do you think that they're really not something you can help with? I was thinking about the kinds of things that we do take seriously. So I don't know if you know this, but just right outside the narthex doors there on the wall on the north side of the building here, there's an an AED device. I can never remember what the letters stand for. Automatic something defibrillator. So if somebody starts having a heart attack, what would we do? You should all know that you can all, every last one of you, use that machine because it gives you instructions for what to do. So don't ever be afraid. If somebody's having a heart attack, go and grab that machine. All right? And it'll tell you what to do, and it won't do anything if the person's not really having a heart attack. So if you made a mistake and somebody's just kind of fallen asleep, look, don't, don't worry about it. All right? What would we do if somebody keeled over and their heart wasn't beating? Well, a bunch of people would run and grab that artificial automatic defibrillator. And a bunch of you would pull out your cell phones and call 911. And the rest of us who have nothing to do would not just stand around twiddling our thumbs, but guess what I think we would do, or I hope we would do, is we would start praying. What a great thing to do here in church is to pray. And look at how you would hop to action. Look at how urgently you would take it, how seriously you would regard the jeopardy that that person's life is in. If we do not take sin so seriously, then we have not listened carefully to what God says. And you can imagine, you know, somebody sitting in the pews, there's that automatic defibrillator, somebody's lying in the aisle, their heart's not beating. You can imagine maybe somebody who's looking at the situation saying, listen, guys, this is kind of disruptive, isn't it? It's kind of, you, you have to rip that guy's shirt off. Maybe just leave his shirt intact. Leave, don't, don't rip his buttons. Unbutton them gently. Let's, let's just do this off in the corner. Let's be quiet and, you know, let's not disrupt the flow of the service. If that's what you said, I would say, you're out of your mind. This person is dying. They're lying in the aisle. Let's go. Let's hop to action because this is serious. That's how we should think about sin. 
It's how you should think about the sin in your own life and the sin in your brothers and sisters from whom, from which they need to be rescued desperately. What a gift God has given us that we are not in this on our own. That we are not, in fact, like that prodigal son, all alone in a foreign country, longing to eat the pods that are fed to the pigs. But we are in the company of saints. People who have been forgiven by God, who know what it is to have their sins cast away. What a precious thing that is. Let us not ever squander that gift. Now, you could look at this parable, and I think you should look at it this way. There's a man in this parable who does take sin very seriously, and that is the older brother. And he's a good lesson for us because, of course, just taking sin seriously is not enough. As seriously as you take sin, you must also, even more, take mercy seriously. Understanding what sin does to us, where it leads, and how much guilt we bear on account of it, that's the prerequisite. But the whole point in paying attention to sin, in confessing our sins, in laying bare our hearts, is so that God can receive us with grace and mercy. So that we, like that prodigal son, can stand humbly before our Heavenly Father with nothing to offer, no bargaining chips, nothing to give Him, nothing that we can do to make up for what we have done, and so that we can hear those precious words, get the robe and put shoes on His feet and put a ring on His finger and slaughter the fattened calf because this, my son, my son, was dead and is alive. He was lost and he has been found. That is what this is all about. Listen again to what it says in Micah chapter 7. What great words that God speaks to his people. He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. Think about that. God's favorite thing to do is to forgive sins. Forgiving sins is what makes him happiest. Take that seriously. And what will he do with them? He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, that he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, buried at 13,000 feet so that no one can recover them. That is what God will do with our sins. That is why we undergo this whole exercise week after week, coming in here and confessing our sins, pleading to God for mercy. It's because it's what he wants to do. That's why two things, at least two things, should be very clear in this place. Above all other places, you can't expect to find these things in the world, but we should expect to find it here. First of all, that we take sin seriously. That is to say, when you come into this place, you must leave your sins behind. Not checking them at the door as though you're going to pick them up again on your way out, but leaving them behind in the very same way that that prodigal son left behind the pig field. He was not going back. Now, he did not do that on his own, and this is a very important thing to observe. He came to his senses, which for us means he was called to repentance. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can draw you out of that destitution. And when he calls, listen, leave your sins behind. Leave them at the door and never pick them up again so that you can come in here and be forgiven. And that's the other thing that everyone should know when they walk into this place. That sin is taken seriously and mercy even more seriously. There should be no more joy in this place than when a sinner is forgiven. Than when an unrighteous person once again becomes righteous and receives the mercy of God. No greater joy as though the dead were being raised. Better 
than someone whose heart has been stopped, has been brought back to life. Better than that is being pulled out of the grave and set aside for God's kingdom. I think that one of the best ways, or really, in fact, the only way, for us to take any of these things seriously is for us every day, for each of you every day, to examine your hearts once again, to open the scriptures and read again of God's mercy and love for you, to start every day with the tender mercies of God, with his mighty and powerful works, with his promises, with his love for you. There is, in fact, no other way to go through your days in any other way, choosing your own adventure, thinking that you've got it made, that you've got everything settled, that you're Christians and that's fine and we can just move on, that sin is kind of off the table, that you understand the mercy of God, thinking about it any other way than as sinners who are desperately needing God's mercy day after day is a path downward, a path leading straight to the same place as the prodigal son. But God wants to give you something better. Narrow is the way. But look, your Savior, who died and rose again, he's the one who's leading you on that narrow way. He's gone through that narrow way already, through the grave, and he broke out, bringing you life. There is nothing better on offer in this world. It is the very best thing. And you possess it, not by rights, but because God, your beloved Savior, has called you to be his children. To him alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.